The holiday season is about cheer, gathering with loved ones, and of course, food. So as a child, my dad would let me help make fudge with him. I would sit on the kitchen counter and try to stir that marshmallow fluff into the chocolate and the evaporated milk and the sugar and the butter while it was all hot and gooey. And we always made fudge the night before and then let it set out on the kitchen counter until the morning when we would have fudge for breakfast. And it's a tradition that I've carried on with my own children who are now young adults and then with my grandson who's nearly for he loves having fudge for breakfast. This time of the year, I'm always excited about the sweet potato pies. So my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, he farms every year at the end of the summer. He stops by Granny's house and leaves like three big crates full of sweet potatoes. And then of course she puts them in the basement for them to cure. And then throughout the winter, she's using those sweet potatoes to make pies. My mom would make the latkes on the first night of Hanukkah. And I just remember the aroma of the latkes filling the whole house and, uh, and, and the crackle and splatter of the oil. And, and also my mom cursing in her own mom way, saying something like, God bless America. You know, it, it, whenever some of the oil splattered on her arm accidentally. <laughs> Marshmallow fudge, sweet pies, and fried potato pancakes. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, nutritional guidelines and food systems for the season of eating. While a lot of people think of the holidays as a time for home-cooked food, it's no secret that fast food and packaged treats make up their fair share of the bounty. Alex DeFelice Antonio warns that ultra-processed foods like potato chips and store-bought cookies can actually be addictive. Alex is a professor at Virginia Tech. She wants food manufacturers to include processing information on their labels. Alex, you and your colleagues recently called for a worldwide shift in the way we think about ultra-processed food. We already know it's bad. What do you mean we want a shift in worldwide thinking? Yeah, I think there's this kind of idea, like if you ask somebody on the street, you know, hey, should you be eating this food that comes out of a package or eating this fast food? You know, they would tell you no. But there aren't actually any guidelines in the U.S. So the U.S. dietary guidelines don't address processing. Um, There's some idea that they might in the future in 2025. And we also have these foods really just everywhere in our environment. They're in school lunches. They are kind of other on the shelves. They're all they line the checkout lines. And so even though we know that these things are pretty bad for us, we're really living in an environment where they are inevitable and they're everywhere. You know, if you try to quit smoking, then you stay away from cigarettes. You don't go to your corner, smoking corner. You don't talk to your friends who smoke. And that's impossible with these foods. They're just everywhere. And that's where we really need to have a shift in our thinking, start thinking about what kind of changes in policy can we make? What kind of changes can we make to our environment, to grocery stores, to schools, where we can actually help people make better food choices? Rattle off a bunch of ultra-processed foods we'd be familiar with. There are a lot of ultra-processed foods, and I generally say if you're in the middle of the grocery store and you're holding a package and it crinkles, it is probably an ultra-processed food. So things like chips, snack cakes, a lot of frozen meals, um, I mean, really, yeah, almost everything that is in the middle of those grocery aisles. There's, of course, some exceptions, right? Um, But the vast majority of them are ultra-processed. And a really good way to tell is just think, like, can I make this with these ingredients in my home kitchen? And if you can't, it's an ultra-processed food. And how bad for us are ultra-processed foods? What are they doing to us? What we have right now is a lot of what we would call kind of epidemiological evidence. So big population-type studies, and not quite as many experimental studies. So the kind of gold standard for uh, asking these questions is a randomized control trial, which 
There's one randomized control trial that was run in 2019 at the NIH, and they just fed people either minimally processed foods or ultra-processed foods, and the same people got those foods over two weeks, and then it flipped. And just having the ultra-processed foods led people to eat more and gain weight. And if you step back a little and look at that population level and not just in this really tightly controlled experiment, consumption of ultra-processed foods is associated with increases in various forms of cancer, um, including colorectal cancer. There was a recent paper out on head and neck cancer. Um, it's even associated with ovarian cancer. It's associated with all-cause mortality, so just your likelihood to die early. Um, and it, of course, it's associated with overweight and obesity, as well as type 2 diabetes. They've also been associated with heart disease, as well as stroke. So there aren't really many kind of poor health outcomes at this point that we haven't found that consumption of ultra-processed foods, especially kind of high levels of consumption of ultra-processed foods, doesn't lead to one of these bad outcomes. That, that evidence is really kind of overwhelming. And you've done research into the actual addictive nature of ultra-processed foods. We all know that we crave them, and we understand that kind of addiction, that I want more. But you mean genuinely addictive. Mm -hmm. I think when people think about this idea of, of what makes like a genuine addiction, they're thinking about things like withdrawal um, or physical dependence, which actually aren't great criteria for defining a substance as addictive. Um, those criteria actually include things like craving. So intense craving um, is, is a criteria for a substance being addictive. Um, use despite negative consequences. So continuing to consume the thing even though you know it's bad for you or it's going to lead to a poor outcome. Um, the other criteria is that it's highly reinforcing so that you're willing to work for it. Um, you're willing to... You know, you know, go out and, and seek it out. Um, and so these criteria are actually much better predictors of whether a substance is addictive than something like withdrawal. And if you look at those criteria, ultra-processed foods actually really kind of tick all of those boxes um, in the same way that thing, other uh, kind of legal addictive substances like cigarettes and alcohol do. How much of it is habit and a habit that's hard to break, and how much is actual food addiction that we find almost impossible to control? You know, is there a difference between addiction and habit? Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, in talking about these things, like, I don't want to diminish, like, the joy that food brings, right? Like, food is delicious, <laughs> yeah. and it's things that we, you know, gather around. You know, we just had Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and it's like, you know, it's my husband's favorite holiday because I cook a ton of food, and, you know, you sit around the table, and you have all these, like, sense memories associated with these foods. And I, I don't want to, in kind of any way, like, demonize food, Right. The kind of real difference here is like, yes, you can consume those things and enjoy them. And, you know, I do. Like a hot glazed donut is just a delicious, right? Yeah. But we also have to keep in mind that these foods are not just being consumed for that kind of like pure sensory pleasure or that moment of enjoyment. They are everywhere. You know, I'm pumping gas and there's an advertisement for fried chicken in front of me. Um, you know, they're being advertised aggressively to children. We need to think about, okay, yes, we can have these things in our environment, but our current level of consumption of 58% is just probably too high for everybody to be healthy, right? And so we need to think about ways to kind of decrease these foods. And at the same time, you know, not everybody who consumes an addictive substance interacts with that substance in an addictive way, right? Lots of people try cigarettes and they never take up smoking. Lots of people drink occasionally and they never have a problem with alcohol. Um, you know, those rates are kind of around between 14 and 18 percent. And those are actually the same rates that we see for food addiction. Um, so if you measure food addiction by the Yale Food Addiction Scale, about 16% of the general population is going to register as having these kind of addictive problems towards food. And so it's not that, okay, everybody is having this problem, but they are 
everywhere in our environment. And that's something that we really should be thinking about, about how to reduce the level because we have a lot of evidence now that they're bad for us. What is in ultra-processed foods that makes us crave them? What ingredients, what kinds of properties? That is a great question. And the really short answer is we don't know exactly. We have some suspicions. And so the things that we think might be driving some of their addictive qualities um, are high levels of fat and refined carbohydrates. So if you think about, we were just talking about donuts, right? Like those are really high fat and really high sugar. And if you think about those foods that are ultra processed, you really crave like pizzas or snack cakes or chips, those have that quality, right? They're high in refined carbohydrates and they're high in fat. So by refined carbohydrates, I mean things like flour um, or added sugars. It's really those easily digestible carbohydrates. Um, And then they're also high in fat. So things that are fried have fat. A lot of baked goods have added fat. And what we know is that those two nutrient signals um, increase dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the area of the brain called the striatum. And this area is really involved in motivation, in kind of that idea. If you want to think of like, what is dopamine's role? It's kind of, okay, do that again. Um, And when you combine these things, you get this kind of double hit. Um, And we think that that might be driving some of the addictive qualities um, of these foods. That's amazing. Have any other countries, by the way, tried to put limits or the brakes on producers of ultra-processed foods? Yes. Honestly, in this regard, the U.S. is a bit behind. Um, So Colombia just passed the first tax on ultra-processed foods, and countries like Chile and Mexico have had sugar-sweetened beverage taxes as well as front-of-the-package labeling for ultra-processed foods. I think it's over 100 countries have either targeted taxes um, or labeling for ultra-processed food and sugar-sweetened beverages. And when you look into what happens in those countries when you tax things or when you do things like front of the package labeling, consumption decreases. And so, you know, that's an avenue that we can think about in trying to put limits on our own consumption. I appreciate labeling, but it seems labeling alone really doesn't help very much, you know? I agree with you. I mean, we have seen that front of the package labeling kind of on a large scale works, but What happens when you walk into your local store, you walk into your local bodega, and everything has the label on it, right? Because you live in an area where fresh food is really hard to come by. And that is what I think is going to take, you know, pretty substantial and kind of courageous action to say, okay, we need to make sure that when we are telling everyone, you know, these foods are bad for you, that we have viable alternatives for people to purchase, that people can buy fresh food, that they're not living in areas where there are no supermarkets that have fresh food stocked. And that's something that really, you know, kind of as a society, we're going to need to start to, to grapple with the equity aspect of it. Another thing that has been striking to me that I've just really started to think about is the environmental impact of these foods. We really think about, you know, the kind of plastics in our environment and the plastics in our food supply. I think there was a recent study in Brazil that found kind of 90% of waste found on beaches was food packaging. And so if we're thinking about kind of trying to make a positive impact on our planet and really think about ways that we can be more sustainable, eating less ultra-processed foods is one of them, and partially just because of the food packaging. The other thing with food packaging that I've been kind of just sometimes messes with my brain is, you know, these foods were designed to be shelf-stable, right? And they spend a long time in contact with their packaging, And we have some evidence that kind of chemicals from that packaging leaches into the food, but we don't have a great understanding of how much and when and under what conditions. And so we often think of that food label that's telling us what's in the food. Okay, this is going to tell me everything that is in what I'm eating. 
But that's not taking into account the fact that if that sat onto a sh- on a shelf, that something from that packaging is leaching into the food. And those are probably going to have health effects that we are going to take us a very long time to understand. Alex, this is so valuable. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you. Alex DeFelice Antonio is a professor and associate director of the Center for Health Behaviors Research at Virginia Tech. Healthy nutrition for Virginia Indian communities is about more than just the food on the table. It's also about how that food got there. Troy Wipangwi and Zach Conrad are building software that helps Virginia Indians plan to grow their own food. Troy and Zach are former colleagues at William & Mary, where Troy was a researcher, and Zach is a professor in kinesiology. Before I begin, I'd like to introduce myself and Virginia Algonquin. Cheshchime uh, Wingapo, Saked Wingkan, Nutuduwenj Troy Wipongwi, Chikahamani Nunuwam. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. Uh, my name is Troy Wipongwi, and I am a Chickahominy descendant. Zach, you're working with your colleague Troy and the Indian tribes of Maryland, North Carolina, and Virginia on a food project. What's the food problem you're tackling? The problem that that we're addressing is that these indigenous communities, many of them are facing really substantial health disparities that are driven by this unequal access to healthy food and also lack of community control over their own food production. Food sovereignty in its simplest form is just a community having the rights of ownership of their food supply chains. They grow their foods and they're able to distribute their foods to the community without dealing with a bunch of external forces that could impact that. So when it comes to the Virginia tribes, the East Coast tribes, how do they not already have food sovereignty? Yeah. So... Colonization is the easiest answer. Uh, We were disconnected from our traditional foods relatively early on, um, which was both intentional and non-intentional in some ways. Uh, The quickest way to disrupt a community is to disrupt their food supply chains. This shifts power dynamics, uh, and that's certainly something that took place uh, within our communities. Um, The transition from traditional agriculture, uh, so growing three sisters like corn, bean, squash, but also having access to the types of grains that we used to eat before uh, rice came along and replaced it, uh, or the types of breads that we would make from corn or acorn flour being replaced by wheat because these were considered commodity crops and mass-produced crops. Our agriculture was quickly replaced by Western agricultural monocropping. And when things like that take place, your community loses access uh, and the ability to maintain uh, their own um, food destiny. What sort of health effects come from that? Well, in many of these communities, they are up to twice as likely to develop diet-related chronic diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And amazingly, they are up to three times as likely to die from these conditions compared to non-Indigenous people. You know, it's sobering to think how far they and we have come from growing and making our own food or even having the option to do it. You know, one of the reasons why this work is so impactful is because these communities not only are facing these, these really serious challenges, but they're also really resilient and they're tireless in their efforts to maintain their vibrant, historical, traditional customs and their identity. So they've merged that interest, that, that those deep historical roots, with also this ability to adopt to these more advanced technologies that can be really leveraged to improve their health outcomes, while at the same time improving the environmental sustainability of the food systems that they depend on and they value for cultural reasons as well. You're creating a computer model specifically designed for each tribe. How will a computer model help lead to a better diet for them? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, So 
we can create unique software that helps tribal communities answer the questions of how much food can we grow on our tribal lands? Uh, how many people can be fed this diet that's grown on the tribal lands? Uh, how much inputs do we need to ensure that we have a certain type of yield? And um, where can we grow it most effectively? Give me an example or a hypothetical of the kind of, of foods people are getting right now and the sorts of foods they could grow for themselves or create for themselves in the ideal. <laughs> yeah, so most of what people are consuming, and this is, this is really true of, of um, people all across the United States too, this is not just specific to indigenous communities, is that generally people are over-consuming what we would call ultra-processed foods. So these are foods that typically are really high in sodium, high in added sugar, saturated fat, and also in refined grains. So these are grains with the, the healthy fiber that's been removed. And what the evidence consistently shows us is that eating in that type of way, diets that are really high in those types of ultra-processed foods, leads to increased risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other chronic diseases. So what this software will help these communities do is to really orient their food consumption more towards whole foods while still giving them the option to use those whole foods in any of their cultural dishes that they like. So if they're really interested in growing more, say squashes, corn, beans, this will give them the opportunity, empower them to, to be able to do that. And is it almost done? The software will be released by early 2025. What we currently have is information on the tribal boundaries, what the soil quality, the elevation levels, the average precipitation rates, how climate change is currently impacting what can be grown there. I'm curious, have you talked to people in the Chickahominy tribe about it? Yes. What kind of reaction have you had? So we're working with the Eastern Chickahominy's environmental director now, who's just provided us with amazing feedback on what we call ground truth. So we're looking from maps and we're saying, we have this information and we know this would be a good place to grow. And she tells us, well, we have a tribal house there, so we can't technically grow it. So even though you see theoretically that you could grow things there, in reality, we might not be able to. So the fact that we have this um, relationship from our Indigenous Advisory Council to provide us with constant feedback, we know that by the time the software comes out, they're going to have the most accurate data to actually meet their objectives. Are they excited about what they can do in the future? 100%. You hosted an Indigenous People's Feast recently at William & Mary, where you teach. Would you name some of the tribes who were there and the foods they brought with them to the feast? Yeah, so we had about uh, 24 tribes represented. Chickahominy tribe, Eastern Chickahominy tribe, Nottaway tribe. These are tribes in Virginia. Uh, you had your Nansaman tribe represented. Uh, we had the Lumbee tribe, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indian represented. Uh, some people from out west, we had uh, Diné tribe, Apache members as well. So we had five chefs represented of those 24 tribes. So Joe Rochi, who is a fantastic chef from the Pamunkey tribe, brought uh, a range of foods, uh, venison, some corn mush, three sister soups, uh, your corn, beans, and squash, the fourth sister being sunflower, which is very indigenous to this region, uh, Lonnie Custolo, uh, who is a member of the Mattapanai tribe, uh, one of the oldest reservations in the United States, has a winery called the Mattapony Reserve, and they make a special bison meat pie. So that was represented. Jasmine Anderson, who is a Pamunkey descendant, as well as an Anishinaabe descendant, brought Indian tacos, which is very much a pan-Indian dish. Uh, so it's a fried piece of bread topped with bison meat and then some toppings like lettuce, tomatoes, sour cream, cheese. Tomalita Peterson from the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina brought a very unique dish to the Lumbee community which really demonstrates a fusion of cuisines from indigenous, African, and European communities, which were collard wraps, basically like these 
corn cakes. You can think of a pancake made of corn flour topped with collards, like southern cooked type of collard greens, sprinkled with chow chow. And chow chow being kind of like a condiment uh, that's unique to the Lumbee community as well. And finally, you had me, who is not a chef, but kind of comes from the food science background, who looks at indigenous foods from the perspective of, if we want people to adopt these foods, we need to provide them with something that they kind of know or have seen before, but shifts enough that it has a unique take of indigeneity, like a Cantonese duck. So this was a dish that I made. Traditionally, a Cantonese duck is made using a blend of soy sauce, brown sugar, and five spice, which is a blend of Szechuan peppercorns, ani seeds, fennel, cloves, and cinnamon. I was able to recreate something like that by using spices that grow exclusively here, using this food science type of background where instead of using black pepper, I would use juniper berries. Uh, instead of using anise seed and fennel, which has kind of a licorice flavor, I was able to use something called anise sisup, which comes from the mint family, but is indigenous to this area. Instead of using cloves and cardamoms and nutmeg, I was able to use allspice, which is indigenous to the areas. And then maple syrup as a sweetener and a fermented fish and local black beans, since we had corn, bean, squash, uh, to recreate uh, a flavor profile of a soy sauce. What was the reaction of the eaters? It was gone in about 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's always the good sign, yes. right? Why did you call the feast revolutionary? It, it's revolutionary because the demand to consume foods like this starts to change and shift the patterns that are taking place behind the scenes. So now we can start to reacquire our traditional practices and our traditional foods to bring it up to the forefront of people that are eating these cuisines. That's why it's a revolution. Indigenous food sovereignty kind of transcends the indigenous community itself. It's about centering indigenous people to reclaim uh, what's been lost, but it's also about this coalition building for all of us. We're all in this together to try to solve the planet, and that means shifting our patterns of food consumption, but making sure that we're doing it in a way that people are happy and excited about without drastically shifting uh, what they already do on a day-to-day -day basis. You just heard from Troy Wee Pong Wee, and before that, Zach Conrad. Troy Wee Pong Wee is the incoming director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship in Conservation at William & Mary's Institute for Integrative Conservation. Zach Conrad is a professor in kinesiology at William & Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. For young and old alike, it can be hard to say no to one more holiday treat. My next guest shares some of her favorite strategies for everyone, toddlers to adults, trying to stick to a balanced diet. Tracy Condor is Old Dominion University's campus dietitian. Tracy, you've had great advice for teaching children how to eat a balanced diet. Walk me through how you did it and what you advise to other parents. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I have three children that are now young adults, and I had a lot of fun finding unique and fun ways to teach them to be healthy, to fuel their body for the things that they wanted to do throughout the day. So we actually had portion plates, cheap plates. These had little dividers in them, so it separated out the four food groups, basically, a protein group and a fruit, veggie, and grain group. And that way, they kind of got the idea right from the start of the balance that would be needed on their plate. And they didn't know why, but they started to learn about which foods went in each category. When they were a little bit older, we would make this little spinner out of a paper plate, and we would spin it around, and everybody had their name on the plate. And when it landed on your name, you got to pick the veggie or the fruit or whatever. So we really just kind of got them involved in healthy eating. And I really feel like that set them up for a good foundation. And what about sweet foods? How did you handle dessert with young children? 
Oh, I love it when people ask me about desserts, especially when they say, oh, you're a dietitian. You must never eat a cookie. <laughs> I thought, who, me? <laughs> no, I just learned how to balance it in. And then I taught that to my kids. So what we would do is we would give them two cookies, little cookies on their plate with dinner every meal. And they could eat it at the beginning if they really wanted to. They could eat it in the middle. At the end, we didn't care. We, we wanted them to kind of be desensitized to sweets so that it wasn't this thing they had to clear their plate for. They didn't have to work for it. It wasn't special, in other words. It was just another food on their plate. But I also knew that it was in the right portion, too. We weren't going over much over 100, 150 calories for that sweet treat. And, and that way I knew even if they gobbled it up first, which I, you know, it was a while ago, but I do think there were a couple of times right in the beginning where they, they ate a cookie first, but I, I knew we had reached success when my oldest at the end of the meal, he hadn't eaten his cookies and he handed them back to me. And he was like, well, mom, can you hold on to these for me? I really don't want them right now. And I was like, oh, oh right. Oh, we yes. have arrived. <laughs> it finally worked. What's some advice you have for adults with a sweet tooth? Because here we are in the holiday season, and the sweets are everywhere, and they're tempting. Are there tricks that people could use who already are in the habit of diving for the sweets? Absolutely. So I do have a couple tips for for adults that have maybe gotten into that that routine or habit of having too many sweets. And the first one is, is to understand that sweets are not a bad thing. We just need to balance them into our diet. And so one of the best ways to do that is to understand by calorie range, as one of the tips that you could use, by calorie range, we can say, okay, 150 to 200 calories worth of sweets is perfectly acceptable and a nice, easy way to balance into our diet. So whether that is coffee with sugar in it or a fancy, fancy coffee with extra sugar <laughs> in it, or right. it's a cookie or a piece of cake or something like that, then we know, okay, up to 150, 200 calories is perfectly fine. And then when we start allowing ourselves to have that, even on a daily basis, then we start to say, okay, I don't need it today. You know, I've, I've had sugar yesterday. I had that cookie. I actually, people start to realize what they actually want versus what they've mentally convinced themselves of. If I said to you, never eat a brownie again, all you're going to want is a brownie, right? So if people say, ooh, I am not going to have Christmas cookies this season, or I'm not going to have holiday sweet treats, then all they're going to want is that and super focus on it. It's really interesting. So that's just the first tip. The second tip that I have about eating sugar sweets is if it's during a time when you're not hungry, so you just ate lunch or you just ate dinner and you really wanted a cookie, but you know, it's not because you're really hungry. So let's see if that feeling is still there after you go do something more fun than food. So I call it the 10 minute rule. And what it is, is you make a list of of things that are more fun than food so it's, um, <laughs> it has to be more fun than food. If yeah. it's wax the car or do the laundry or clean the house, I'm going to eat the cookie. But if it is something where um, maybe it's paint my fingernails or phone a friend or something that's just not related to food, I'm going to go do that for 10 minutes. I like to watercolor. I'm not very good at it, but I love to try. And so I will go watercolor for 10 minutes and chances are I'll do it longer than that. But after 10 minutes, the idea is, is that you would recheck how you're feeling. Do I still want that cookie? Do I still want that sweet treat? And if so, then you go back and you do it 10 more minutes. (laughs) Uh, This is not the never ending 10 minute rule, I promise. After, (laughs) After the second round of 10 minutes, then you would actually have a small amount. Like if you really can't distract yourself with something that's more fun than food, it is just that embedded in your brain that you just want that brownie or that cookie or whatever it is, then you would actually go ahead and have a small portion of it enjoy every bite, like really be mindful when you're eating it. And that way, slowly, as you use those two tips, like you're controlling the calories and you're giving yourself the opportunity to be distracted away from the wanting or the craving of a sweet treat, then those two things really help. Where do you think alcohol fits into the nutrition landscape over the holidays? 
Now, alcohol, our bodies really don't know what to do with alcohol, so we do want to limit it, right? We want to be responsible with our drinking, of course, uh, and so a great way to do that is to treat it like an occasional food, right? It's an occasional beverage, maybe one time a week, Maybe. <laughs> Our bodies really yeah. literally don't know what to do with the alcohol. So in the process of it, digesting it, really our body just kind of treats it as a fat. It just wraps it in fat and stores it as fat because it doesn't really understand what to do with the alcohol. So it's not an ideal situation to um, overconsume, right? We, we would want people to drink responsibly and and make sure that they're not driving and drinking and things like that. But as far as the nutrition of it, I would say as far as calories go, you would treat it similar to sugar. You would want to have maybe 150 calories worth, but that's about it. And I would say um, some of the tips that we have here for our students are that if you are of age and you do choose to drink and you choose to drink responsibly, one of those tips might look like you hold a cup of sparkling water <laughs> and nobody knows the difference. Um, we have had students actually tell me like at a party where I felt like I needed to have a drink in my hand, I would mix sparkling water and cranberry juice and it just looked like a really fancy alcoholic beverage But and nobody bothered them. Nobody was saying, hey, let me put a drink in your hand, that kind of thing. So I think a lot of it depends, a lot of my tips would depend on the atmosphere of the party. If you're looking for a gift or a stocking stuffer for someone in your life who might be working on maintaining a healthier diet, what might you think of? Well, I think uh, the great stocking stuffer for anybody would be something that encourages them to eat fruits and vegetables. So whether that is a little fancy tool like a fruit peeler that you would easily peel oranges with, they look like <laughs> just little rings on your finger and you just slide it down the side of the orange and it makes it really easy to peel the orange. I grew up getting an orange or an apple, mainly an orange, in the bottom of my stocking every year. Uh, <laughs> and so my kids, we've carried on that tradition that my parents started, and our kids do the same. So sometimes the gift doesn't have to be a gadget. It could just be actual fruit and vegetables. It could be a healthy snack, even if it's a, if it's a prepackaged one. Like instead of candy bars, we could give little bags of trail mix or something, dried fruit even, that your family loves. Tracy Condor, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tracy Condor is Old Dominion University's campus dietitian. If you Google LeBron James diet, there are hundreds of hits that come back. Same for Lionel Messi or Dak Prescott. Nutrition is just part of being a pro athlete these days. But back in the 1990s, when my next guest was a pro soccer player in China, nutrition wasn't part of his training at all. Eddie Shen is now an exercise science professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise, and in his spare time, he plays soccer. Eddie, you were a pro soccer player in China for 10 years. What was it like? What are some of your memories of that? I would say it's, uh, it was pretty exciting, and every day is like full of challenge. How old were you when they recognized your talent and asked you to be part of a special soccer academy? When I was in the uh, sixth grade, half of the day, you need to spend on soccer training, and then that the other half of the day spend in the classroom and study. Did they teach you special dieting regimens for when you were in the soccer academy as a kid? Unfortunately, nutrition, you know, health education was not a part uh, of the education system when I was in the schools. So actually, I will tell you that when I was a player, I actually did not know anything about nutrition. I just uh, literally ate what, anything that tastes good to me, So, which is really unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> What sort of diet did you have, would you say? When I was a player, I ate a lot of red meat, like pork, yeah. beef, and shrimps. Um, and I think I just ate too much um, meat. And also sometimes in our area, uh, wheat, uh, you know, some um, wheat-based pro food products are also popular, like noodles. So uh, that's pretty much uh, the food that we eat every day. Were you eating the meat also because you thought, hey, I... I'm really working out. 
I need this for my muscles. This is yeah. good for me. Actually, when I was a player, I was I was not aware of those nutrition knowledge. It just simply tastes good to me. But now I kind of reflect on my uh, athletic uh, career. Uh, I just noticed that my diet when I was uh, athletes was pretty unhealthy and pretty in- inappropriate. I would say that's probably the reason why I got some, you know, gastrointestinal stress during the game because I just simply eat too much meat before the game. So, uh, and also, you know, um, I did not stay hydrated that well and I did not include uh, fresh vegetables and fruits on my plates as well. And that's another reason why I experienced muscle cramps a lot, like in the game, at very end of the game. I worked as a goalkeeper. I did not need to run a lot, but I still got muscle cramps. You know, um, some of the minerals like uh, magnesium, potassium, they're only plant-based. So if you do not include enough fruits and vegetables on your plates, and you might experience muscle cramps. Uh, Even marginal deficiency can lead to an increased risk of muscle cramps. At one point, you were on the coaching staff for the Chinese national soccer team. Yes, yes. I was part of them. I worked as a, uh, you know, team coordinator for the national under-17 boys soccer team. And I still remember that there was one time, uh, you know, the head coach, he wanted to find some certified specialists in sports statistics and give a workshop to our players, kind of let let our players know uh what to eat and what are the good food choices to better prepare your body uh, for the games. So, but we barely can find one, you know, uh, sports nutrition uh, expert and eventually we just gave up. So, Uh. yeah, (laughs) I think the demands of dietitian or nutrition experts in the field of sports uh, is really huge. Now that you're a professor, I understand you want to use sports to teach nutrition to young people. Yeah. How do you do that? I think nutrition uh, is a really huge part of our life and of our health and also of our, you know, athletic performance as well. So nutrition actually is a science of food and how our body use it for optimal, you know, growth and athletic performance and also for disease prevention as well. So I just want to teach uh, the kids some of the basic, uh, you know, nutritional knowledge. And also, hopefully, you know, uh, we can talk about some healthier food choices based on those basic nutrition knowledge. For example, I want the kids being able to realize, uh, you know, the types of nutrients and their major function to our body. Uh, for example, you know, um, when we talk about uh, the nutrients that can provide our body energy, so we always refer to those, you know, three macronutrients like uh, carb, fat, and also protein. So I would like to teach the kids that, you know, uh, actually carb is a major fuel for soccer. And also, we also need fat at a certain level as well. And also, we need protein to grow our muscle. So, for example, we can talk about energy sources during the warm-up. It should be coming from fat. And also, during the game or in a 1v1, 2v2 situation, when the intensity of the game increases, your body will start to use glucose uh, or carbs, in, uh, you know, over fat. And also protein can help your body to grow muscle. Those are all the potential conversation that we can have in a soccer context. Well, Eddie Shen, what an honor to have you talk with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Eddie Shen is a professor of exercise science at the University of Virginia College of Wise. Today, there's so many diets and nutritional products that claim to improve performance and deliver any results you might want. Zeely shares the latest research to help us sift through the noise and understand the best nutrition for sports and fitness. Zeely is a professor at Christopher Newport University. See, let me start with protein. I feel like a lot of people who work out are obsessed with protein. Should they be? 
Yes, so protein is definitely important for muscle gain. There are mainly two potent stimulus for muscle protein gain. One of them is weightlifting is the resistance exercise itself. The other one is the protein, or in other words, amino acids. The sources of protein is important as well as the amount of protein. Uh, there are basically like two kinds of protein, whey protein and casein. Okay, so whey protein is more easily digested. It can be digested within like maybe around three hours. And another type of protein is casein. They're mostly in the milk. Right? So those proteins can be digested a little bit like longer. So that's why we recommend people drink milk right before they go to bed because overnight milk can give you like prolonged amino acids elevation in your blood. For those people who want to gain muscle mass, uh, we recommend that they take some of the proteins that are more easily digested, like whey protein. Every meal we need to consume around maybe about 20 grams or 25 grams of, of protein. If you take more than that, those proteins are not be used as building muscles or building your tissues. What about timing of when you eat the protein? Do you eat it right before you work out or afterward? Yes, this nutrition timing is a hot topic. For example, a lot of weightlifting, they believe that there is a anabolic window, which means that you have to intake the protein right after you finish your workout. Okay, that's what people used to believe. However, research has been showing that there is not really an anabolic window. So research has shown that for resistance exercise, your body will have enough amino acids intake for up to 24 hours okay, in young adults. So it is very unlikely that someone will not eat a protein-containing meal within 24 hours after you work out. So take your meal, take your protein shake, whenever you want, as long as you're not working, like, fasted. What role do carbs play in sport nutrition? Should fitness-conscious people avoid carbs? So nowadays, people have been thinking, like, carbs as their enemy, especially for people who, who want to lose weight, who wants to control their body weight. Talking about normal individuals who just want to lose weight, I believe there are some misunderstandings about carbs. So let me ask you a question, Sarah. When I say carbs, can you give me an example of carbs? Like what kind of foods are carbs? Um, maybe I'm picturing pasta. Good. So pasta is a, is a typical example of when people think about carbs. Pizzas, bagels, right? Those things are some typical <laughs> carbs example. Few people will say vegetables, fruits. Those are also examples of carbs, but people not mentioning them. Those very popular carbs, including pasta, pizzas, they are also high in calories. So when people talking about I'm carting those carbs, okay, they are not really carting carbs because what they cut is actually those extra calories. So it's all about the calories uh, when we talk about weight control or weight loss. Talking about athletes, for endurance athletes, carbs are very, very important. So for endurance athletes, carbs, especially your muscle glycogen, that is the major sources of energy. So carbs are very, very important. Uh, so endurance athletes, I would not recommend that those people cutting carbs because you're cutting carbs, you're, you're impairing your performance. What about hydrating and sports drinks versus water? What do you recommend? For a normal individual who just do a normal workout session, sports drink does not provide more effective way in terms of hydration as compared to water. Cold water is just as effective as the most available sports drink on market in terms of hydration. Okay, so people will believe that, well, I sweat, I'm going to lose a lot of salts, a lot of electrolytes. That is not the case. Actually, your sweat contains less salt 
then it is in your blood. Okay? So you're not losing a lot of electrolytes. Plus, your kidney is also reabsorbing those salts and also those waters to help your body uh, to maintain its internal environment. Cold water is just good enough. However, if you work out, again, long time, like more than two hours, three hours, you lose a lot of sweat. In this case, you probably will take some electrolyte containing drink. In another situation, uh, when we talk about sports drink, maybe beneficial is that uh, sports drink contains carbohydrates. So those carbohydrates will enhance performance, especially in those endurance athletes, uh, like you did, wh whoever will be running for cycling for more than one hour, two hours. What about caffeine in workouts? I read something recently talking about how caffeine can enhance a workout. What do you think about that? Yes, so caffeine is definitely useful as a ergogenic aid to enhance performance especially uh, people who are doing those low-carb diets. Um, so if they cut carbs, of course, they will have less glycogen stored in the muscles. And in this case, we recommend taking caffeine right before your event or your games or races to, to really enhance your performance because caffeine can really give you a boost in your heart rate, both short-term and long-term endurance type of exercise. Z. Lee is a professor in molecular biology and chemistry at Christopher Newport University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.